Hello all, it's Tavara Krasniansky here from Adayad. I'm working together with the Crown Heights Community Council. And we're very blessed to have gotten a grant from the City of New York to address domestic abuse. So with that, we've done several workshops and conference calls and articles regarding domestic abuse and um, solemn bias in general. Uh, we're very blessed to have uh, David Cohn here today talking to us about is it really abuse we started off this, uh, this series with several workshops about what is abuse and how to be helpful. Throughout these months that we've been doing this, several different types of questions have come up. Is this really abuse? Or everyone should know that, the, the, that this is what is occurring is abuse and people shouldn't um, misname it. So we're going to debunk some of those myths and talk a lot about that today. So. Uh, during the call, if you have any questions, you can send us to adeyad.org slash ask-anonymous question, or you can send it to us directly at info at So with that, we're going to just jump right into the call. So thank you, David, for joining us. Sure. Hi, Devor and everybody. It's a pleasure to be on this evening. Okay. So I just want to bring a couple scenarios that came to our attention over these weeks that we've been doing this work. And I think that kind of explains the types of questions that have been coming up. These are a fictitious kind of a conglomerate of several different conversations. But uh, I want to start off with those and to give us a little bit of a flavor of what kinds of questions that are coming up. So first scenario, the wife just had her first baby, and after that the fighting and cursing is escalating. He doesn't take care of the baby ever. And uh, a friend brought some food uh, to, help, to help the new, uh, the new family, and he threw out the food because he doesn't like to be a taker. But on the other hand, he doesn't make or buy warm food, so she ends up eating yogurt and sandwiches that she made by herself. He also doesn't like her mother, so he doesn't let her come by to help, and he doesn't let her talk to her friends on the phone when he's home. Uh, but she's free to do whatever she wants when he's not home. Um, so she's upset, and um, she second-guesses everything. Is this abuse? Let me just do one more scenario, and then we'll jump into the, more of the conversation. Another, another um, scenario. She, can't get, she can never get anything right. If she doesn't fold the towels correctly, he'll throw them out of the closet. And if he, she's lucky, this time he won't slap her. One time she gave away all the desserts after a dinner party, and he wanted some. So he threw all the dinner plates at the wall, one by one, narrowly missing her. If she buys an outfit, he complains that's too expensive or it's too cheap, he's never happy. Uh, if it's too cheap, meaning that people will think that he's poor, that's why he's buying, she's buying those kind of clothes. He's never happy. He's always belittling her tastes, her efforts, just her in general. Is this abuse? Mm -hmm. So we'll discuss that. Hopefully that's the point of the call. But let's just start with a couple, with another question. So. Abuse is abuse, I and mean, it just feels horrible. It's painful and hard. What's the difference? What type of abuse there is? You want to just talk about the different types of ways that people feel abused? Sure. Um, I think it's probably um, helpful to backtrack a, a bit of a step and contrast the idea of abuse or the types of abuse that, that we're going to be um, categorizing first by beginning with, you know, what would be a healthy marriage or a healthy relationship. And I think that will then um, help us understand, you know, what, what are some of the contrasts for that. So 
A healthy marriage is where each spouse is feeling the responsibility to consider and to take care of each other, take care of each other emotionally, spiritually, physically, psychologically. When we have this, we can refer to this relationship as being healthy or a functional marriage because both partners are functioning in their roles, fulfilling their goals of a healthy relationship, getting their needs met, and giving their needs to each other. Uh, this doesn't mean that anybody's doing this perfectly. There's no such thing as a perfect marriage because there's no such thing as a perfect human being. But um, that's the overall picture and dynamic and pattern of the relationship. Um, I'm there for you. You're there for me. I matter to you. You matter to me. I can count on you. You can count on me. And, um, and so that's healthy and that's functional. So we can contrast that with um, unhealthy relationships. We are... Um, the um, one or both spouses are not um, abiding by this. There, there, is, um, the, 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 there isn't an ability to count on each other or to be, feel like um, there is reliability um, or that you matter to me or that you feel like I matter to you. Um, and obviously, when this happens, this could manifest in many, many different ways. But now we're talking about a relationship that's either unhealthy or has unhealthiness in it. Um, the... <laughs> when the, this breakdown in functioning happens, sometimes it can happen in such a way that feels so bad that uh, the person experiencing it or both people can, can call it abusive or feel like it's abusive. And then potentially we could be um, wondering if this is domestic abuse. Is this a, a, a relationship that we would categorize as being one that is an abusive one? So when this happens, this could typically happen for one of two categories, either the one or both people in the relationship don't have the proper attitude or perspective about what marriage, what a relationship is all about, what a healthy marriage is all about. There's a certain self-centered expectation that marriage is about what I'm going to get, what I want, what I need, versus what I'm going to give. So that's one potential factor for what, um, <coughs> for what can account for dysfunction and problems um, relationally. And then there are various mental illnesses or mental health issues that will also um, account for um, unhealthiness in a relationship. But now we get to um, concerns about abuse. And so it's important to have some words or, or descriptors that will help us differentiate. So the first one that we're going to talk about is what's, what I call situational couple violence. Okay, so this is domestic violence where the violence could be initiated equally by men or women, by the husband or the wife, um, and it's not categorized by a pattern of coercive control, and we're going to get back to that in a minute. Okay, so there can be abusive behavior um, with uh, words, you know, verbally. There could be abusive behavior um, with, um, with finances. There could be um, some intimidating behavior. Um, there could be other forms of inappropriate, um, unhealthy, problematic behavior, but it isn't potentially all on one person, and it isn't being driven by this fundamental um, engine that we're calling coercive control. Um, so this situational couple violence is obviously a serious concern of dysfunction, an unhealthiness in a relationship, right? Anything that includes physical abuse, intimidation, child abuse, verbal abuse, emotional, psychological, social isolation, um, these are things that... Um, Will all be t we can term them as abusive behaviors, but they can also take place within this pattern, this problematic pattern of a relationship that we would call situational couple violence. 
it tends to be in those kind of relationships, it tends to be situation specific. Um, it's not necessarily one person specific. And even if it typically is one person who has a specific, a specific behavior, it isn't being driven from a place of a need for or a desire for maintaining, establishing and maintaining control. And then we have what's known popularly as um, domestic abuse or domestic violence, or what I tend to call more specifically intimate partner terrorism, okay, because this really allows us to differentiate this form of um, abusive relationship patterns from the previous one. And this is where there's a pattern of coercive control, where one person in the relationship is deliberately exercising over the other partner control in order to dominate, in order to get their way, and committing behaviors that are um, either physically harmful or arouse fear in the person, in the other person, in order to prevent that person from doing what they want, or in order to compel that person to behave in ways that um, he or she wouldn't freely choose. Okay, so in dysfunction, the focus is typically on the self, right? If um, if John is um, the dysfunctional partner, then John is acting self-centered. Um, John tends to see his own needs without seeing the needs of his partner. Whereas in intimate partner terrorism, even though there is an element of this, the primary core focus is that there's an attitude and an assumption of entitlement in order to really dominate uh, the partner. So in the situation of intimate partner terrorism, John is um, going to potentially do any of the behaviors we mentioned before, any of the categories of behaviors we mentioned before, um, physical, psychological, emotional, financial, all these forms of abusive behavior. But what there is in addition to that is this driven um, agenda of establishing control and using uh, um, fear um, or the implied threat to maintain fear, to establish fear in order to maintain the, um, the control. The, um, what we also know is that in intimate partner terrorism, um, there is often emotional abuse, with or without physical abuse, that will over time alter the victim, the other partner's view of themselves, their relationships, and their place in the world. So their sense of self over time and their sense of self-worth begins to erode, begins to deteriorate. And this enables, this, this, this um, deepens the, um, the perpetrator's ability to continue to assert um, their dominance and maintain their control in the relationship pattern. So what winds up happening is this type, the specific pattern of psychological abuse results in the victim becoming demoralized and trapped in the abusive behavior, in, in the abusive relationship. Um, also, another thing to note is that in these types of um, abusive relationships, which we're, t we're talking about intimate um, partner terrorism, there doesn't necessarily always have to be a high level or a high frequency of physical violence. Sometimes the actual physical violence could be fairly infrequently or a low level of it, but the fear, the implied threat, is always going to be present. So with that said, if we go back to the scenarios that you just asked about, we can, we, can, we, can, we can differentiate a little bit. So let's start with the first scenario. Um, there's fighting, there's cursing, there's neglect, there's parental neglect. He's not taking care of the baby. He throws out the food um, and he seems controlling. He doesn't like to be a taker, even though she may want the food, um, but he throws it out, um, doesn't help out. 
um, doesn't like her mother, so he doesn't let her come by. So there's, there's abu- another aspect of abusive behavior, which is isolation. Um, doesn't let her talk to her friends on the phone, more isolation. She can do what she wants during the day, but then um, at some point he expects her to go back to work and leave the baby with a babysitter, which um, if that's not what she wants to do, um, is also um, definitely problematic behavior. And then the scenario ends with she's afraid to upset him, so she second-guesses everything. So we certainly have a relationship that's deeply problematic. Um, and we would need, obviously, to, um, to be able to speak and for somebody to do a, a, a thorough assessment with, um, with the partner in this relationship to really understand, um, A, the history and the pattern of these behaviors, and B, the nature of the fear that, that's being described in this scenario. But um, if, if the fear over here really means that she's, she's literally afraid of him and um, that he knows this, that he uses this fear deliberately in order to uh, maintain his behaviors and to have his way, then we certainly have some form of intimate partner terrorism. But it's also possible, again, without knowing the actual situation and doing a thorough assessment, that we're talking about a relationship that has very, very significant dysfunction with significant patterns of abusive behavior and that um, there could still be um, the, the perpetrator, the, the, the guy in this scenario, the man who's, who's doing these behaviors, that he still may be open and amenable for, to intervention um, if his behaviors are not being driven by this, um, by, like what we talked about in intimate partner terrorism, by this need for the control and using fear um, in order to maintain that power and control. What we know about intimate partner terrorism um, from the research is that approximately 90 to 95% of the time in such relationships, the perpetrator is a male as opposed to a female. But what we know in, in situational couple violence, where there isn't that, uh, that pattern of, um, that underlying pattern of threat and um, fear in order to maintain control, there is no significantly, um, there's no significant gender difference. We know that there are dysfunctional relationships where there are harmful, abusive behaviors that are happening within the, within the context of the relationship that can be initiated or perpetrated um, um, equally by the husband or the wife, by the male or the female. So it's just important to understand and to appreciate that we can have relationships where there's abusive behavior taking place and that definitely, definitely the relationship needs help. And it isn't healthy. It could be even downright toxic. And yet the relationship could be open and amenable to intervention with the right help um, for one, both, or the couple together. Um, whereas when we're talking about intimate partner terrorism, then and, and there's this, this element of threat and fear specifically for the driven agenda of power and control, this is not a situation that is um, likely to be very amenable to traditional couples therapy. Um, statistically, the perpetrator in those kind of relationships is not open and amenable to, to, to real intervention, and it's a much, much more toxic and um, complicated dynamic to deal with. Um, just to end with um, a comment or two about the other scenario that you mentioned, um, just to go through that use it in the same way that we just went through the first one. So um, you mentioned in that scenario she can't get anything right, so there's, there's obviously a dynamic of constant criticism, verbal and emotional abuse. Um, he'll um, throw the towels out of the closet if it doesn't go the way he wants. And then um, another aspect that's added in the scenario is that if she's lucky, he won't slap her this time. So now you have 
actual physical violence, um, which is most definitely a progression, you know, from a clinical perspective, certainly um, when there's actual physical violence taking place, um, then that's considered um, a significant progression, a, a, a whole other level of severity of, of abusiveness. Um, and um, throwing the dinner plates, breaking the, the, the plates, throwing them at her, narrowly missing her. So we have a, a whole other level of danger potentially in the dynamic of the perpetrator in scenario number two. Um, and it certainly seems more to be pointing in the direction of intimate partner terrorism. But again, as with any situation, um, ultimately, um, you know, a skilled, competent professional in these areas who can do a really thorough evaluation, zero in on the right questions to be asking um, to determine, you know, what's the best way to proceed, how to best be of help. Uh, thank you. Well, so when someone is encountering that as a bystander, whether it's a family member or neighbor, and they're seeing this thing hap- uh, these kind of situations happening, what can they do, and does it really matter to their t- to what they can do to help? What what the origin of this abuse is? Right, that's a great question. So, so if I'm understanding you properly, the question is: Does it matter what is actually the difference in the actual relationship pattern, one way or the other? We are we're we're we are, we're relatives, we're neighbors, what have you. We see that there's a problem. There's clearly. Um, something unhealthy happening here, inappropriate, nobody should be spoken or treated to that way, and what's the role, what's, what can someone in that situation do for, for someone who's stuck in that, who's, who's in the, dealing with that, right? That's well, the question. Yes, that's the question, but, and, and I guess part of the question is also, does, uh, does, it, does, that, does that neighbor or friend or family member need to know what type of abuse it is, if it's uh, uh, the, the terrorism or just dysfunction? Right, right, right. Okay, so um, so for example, let's 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 um, let's try to answer both questions. For example, if the if the relationship in fact is one of dysfunction, then um, self help might be an option, right? Somebody being able to read a book, getting educated, um, being able to um, to um, use that information for their own benefit to help change the situation for themselves, for their relationship, may be possible. Um, the, um, the, the situations where we're talking about domestic violence, we, and certainly when it's a, the more severe types of violence or, or the intimate partner terrorism, then um, it, it becomes a lot more complicated. And so I, I think that it's important for us to appreciate that the bystander, the relative, they, they can't possibly be able in that, you know, from the vantage point that they're in and from the lack of actual training that they, don't, that they have, right, they don't have the training, we can't expect them to be able to identify or, or have the, response, the responsibility to identify. So what we need to do, identify the types of, of, of you know, dysfunction versus um, situational couple violence versus intimate partner terrorism, it's not on anybody else other than the professionals that the couple or, or, or the people or the individuals in the coupleship would go to, it's not on anyone else as a responsibility to evaluate this and to, to, to determine that. But um, in terms of like what can be done, so there are some general guidelines that we can highlight um, that are fairly universal so that in any situation these would just be appropriate, helpful guidelines to keep in mind. So I'm going to share some of the things to do versus some of the things not to do, some of the attitudes to have versus some of the attitudes not to have. So first of all, one important idea 
is that um, it's really important to have the mindset of what I call a server, not a fixer or a helper. Because people that come to this situation from the mindset of fixer or helper um, are vulnerable to giving advice um, where that's not really warranted or needed or, or appreciated. They are vulnerable to intervening um, where the people involved don't want them to, or it would be actually safer for them not to get involved. But when we approach from the, from the standpoint of a server, from the mindset of a server, then I'm, I'm not here to fix. I'm not here to be a superhero. I'm not here to rescue. I'm not here to, to, to solve the world's problems. I'm here to serve. And automatically, in the mindset of a server, the question comes into mind is, how can I serve? And so our ears open up. We become receptive to investigating, to understanding, and to listening. So in the context of, of the attitude of the mindset of being a server, then um, what happens is we believe in the importance and the ability of the woman in that situation, the victim, to make her own decisions and to understand that the role of the server is to provide information um, if there's information to be provided, but not advice, to give resources, to give help when help is asked for, to establish and to maintain appropriate relational boundaries, to mostly listen instead of speaking. But when a person is in the mindset of the helper or the fixer, so then we're vulnerable to thinking that the victim is helpless and needs somebody to think for her, um, is vulnerable to intervening according to the helper or fixer's own assessment of what's appropriate or what should be done or what's needed, is vulnerable to giving help or offering an opinion that's not being asked for, is vulnerable to pushing forward with some sort of an intervention that the woman is not necessarily ready for or at this point interested in, tends to give advice instead of giving information, and is going to work harder ultimately than uh, the person who's in that situation. Meaning there are some situations where the person who's in it needs to be able to experience and process in their own way and in their own time with supportive people that they choose and that they feel safe with and trust in order to come to their own clarity and to their own decisions about how to proceed. And if somebody is in the mindset of the fixer or the helper and um, with, with good intentions becomes directive in that process, then they may actually be undermining this person's ability to really um, stay with their own clarity um, and with their own state of readiness for, for whatever they, they determine they need or what they're ready for. Was that clear? Yeah. So um, uh, another kind of angle of the same question is, I don't, uh, again, cl clarify this. People say if it's controlling um, type of abuse, there's no hope, there's no help, and get out. I know it's going to be slow and hard, but get out. And if it's dysfunction, then, then it's possible to work on it. So the type of serving and the type of information that one pulls together might be slightly different, or is that, is that off? Well, I, so a, a couple of comments. Firstly, um, how do we determine if, if something is controlling? So it's easy to look at many types of abusive behaviors and call them controlling behaviors, but, um, but the behaviors themselves may just be part of inappropriate dysfunctional patterns um, as opposed to really being driven by the fundamental agenda of wanting control 
and of the willingness to, to dominate and, and to create threat and fear in order to maintain that control. So I, I think it's overly simplistic. It's easy to do this, especially because it's, um, you know, situations of violence in, in, in partnerships and couples and, and abusive behavior, um, you know, is provocative. It's deeply, deeply provocative. We become very reactive to it, and we care very much. Um, but it's easy to react to, to seeing or hearing about a specific behavior, which, which in and of itself can appropriately be called, should appropriately be called an abusive behavior, and say because that's an abusive behavior, this person is an, is an abuser. And typically, popularly, when people say that, they're referring to this notion of the, of the abuser, quote-unquote, is this, this person that I'm referring to as, you know, in the intimate partner terrorism. That may or may not be accurate. And, and, um, and the good news is that most of the time it's not accurate. There are many, many, there are many more problematic dysfunctional relationships where there's even abusive behaviors that are taking place that are not necessarily the intimate partner terrorism where fundamentally there's a real investment by the perpetrator of the abuse to maintain the power and control, willing to use um, violence and, and fear um, in the service of that. Um, Unfortunately, one situation of intimate partner terrorism is too much. But um, just to be able to see an abusive behavior is not, it's, it's overly simplistic to feel like we can sort of um, diagnose, for lack of a better, I don't mean that literally because this isn't a diagnostic term, but, um, you know, to label and to diagnose that person as the abuser. If we just mean it colloquially, the abuser as in the person who's perpetrated the abusive behavior, then that's fine, that's factual. If, if we know this person as, you know, not giving his wife money uh, to buy food, then he's, he's treating her abusively. You know, that, that is in, you know, that's factual. But typically when we use that word abuser, um, people mean something beyond just the behavior itself. And there's a category that this person or the relationship is being placed in. Um, again, I think that um, um, when it comes to intervention, if people around them, especially non-professionals, can just understand and appreciate the difference of having the mindset of server versus fixer and helper, then we maintain an open ear to hearing directly from the person who's in that situation, who's struggling, who's suffering with what they want, what's their own assessment, what do they know is best right now, what's timely, what are they ready for, uh, what's safe, etc., etc. So following that, uh Firstly, this is a quick question. Is the, the, again the common understanding is that if there's physical violence, that you hit me once, you're out or I'm out. Is that because it's domestic abuse and domestic abuse can never be solved? Well, I, I don't know. I, you know, there's no there's no rule um, that exists anywhere that says that. You know, if there if there's you know you hit me once, I'm out. Uh, somebody could just as easily say you lie to me once, I'm out. Um, you cheat on me once I'm out. You steal money, and I don't. You know, I, I there's no. Um, a relationship is as successful as the two people that are in it, and a relationship um, stays alive for as long as the two people that are in it will it to be. Um, so, so there's no rule that we should be using sort of as an objective, non-unquestioned measure. Um, the people that are in the relationship need to determine if they're in or out. And as difficult as it may be for us on the outside to see somebody who we know, for example, has gotten physically abused, um, and that it may be, we may feel very, very strongly this person needs to go. But that, that is not the mindset of a server. And um, it's the mindset of a fixer or a rescuer. Um, somebody who knows better. 
but ultimately the the the, the person who's in that relationship um, needs to be able to have the supportiveness and the safety and the care to be able to sort it through, explore their options, and determine what's best for them. Okay. Going back a little bit more to help everybody understand a little bit more about domestic abuse with a capital A, mm-hmm. is there a time when it typically starts or accelerates or, you know, or does it happen the day after she has a breakfast? So just to make clear, when you say with a capital A, you mean specifically the intimate partner terrorism kind of yes. dynamic that yes. I was describing? Yes. Okay. Um, so I, I don't know that I can say that there's one typical scenario. What I will say, though, is that um, I can give you, I can share with you some characteristics of the typical male. Again, these are just sort of a, um, a profile based on the research that we have of um, sort of the typical male um, profile um, of, of the perpetrator of those things. Um, and maybe that'll shed a little bit of light. Hang on a moment. Let me pull up my note here about that. Um, but certainly this is not um, stuff that's blatant um, early, early on in the relationship. In looking back, um, the victim will be able to see warning signs or things that they sort of squell, quelled or, or squished, you know, concerns, feelings, um, that, um, or scenarios that took place earlier on, even in dating. It's possible that um, we could look back and see that. It's also possible that um, the person played the perfect gentleman and, um, and that there wasn't um, any real warning signs until, you know, you know, the marriage was fully established. Um, will all relationships, will the abuse come out from Shavabrachas? I, I don't think that we can assume that. Um, I, I think that fairly quickly, though, when we're talking about somebody who, um, you know, is really driven in this intimate partner terrorism, is really driven to dominate and to assert power and control, we are going to see those patterns come out earlier rather than later. Um, and, the, you know, some of these, there are different subtypes. Um, some of these... Um, for, you know, t- just uh, perpetrators or intimate partner terrorists are going to um, behave fairly civilly um, and appropriately and benignly so long as they have no reason to do otherwise. In other words, if their spouse, if their partner doesn't give them cause to, to be reactive to them, to, to react negatively, then they're, they're not necessarily just waking up in the morning and out of, you know, fun and tickles um, torturing their spouse. Um, and they only um, assert their um, perpetration in reaction to a perceived slight or um, disrespect um, from, from their spouse, from the victim. And then there are others, unfortunately, that are, you know, the, the behavior seems a bit more sociopathic in the sense that um, they do have their own um, desire to assert control or dominance um, or the fear even when there isn't necessarily um, some sort of seeming trigger or provocation to that. So, so there's, there's different, different, um, different possible dynamics that can happen within the, as you called it, the domestic abuse with, the, with a capital A. Mm-hmm. So, again, something you, you touched on for just a second in the beginning of the talk, can the abuser or the one who's causing the harm of an in dysfunction, can he ch- can he or she change? 
Mm-hmm. Well, um, as a clinician, I, I would say that um, the, the biggest, most important part that um, involves human change is the, um, the desire, the authentic willingness from a person to, to make change from within. So that's going to be an important factor. What we know, generally speaking, is that um, in, in intimate partner terrorism, again, the more, most severe, most problematic, most complicated dynamics of domestic abuse um, patterns, of domestic abuse situations, the, the perpetrators are typically not available for, um, for intervention. Um, typically, they're fairly skilled <coughs> at um, eluding um, arrest or getting in trouble. Um, when they do um, get involved in, in, um, in intervention, um, the, the success rate is fairly slim. Um, um, but, a for, but for people that behave inappropriately and um, even abusively, where it isn't necessarily being driven by that need for power and control along with the um, willingness the readiness to use threat or actual physical harm, um, if, if, if it's to a lower degree, to a lesser degree, then potentially they are open and amenable to intervention. And this speaks to a whole larger conversation um, in understanding and in appreciating um, the, the phenomenon of domestic abuse, domestic violence, that it can't simply be seen as, you know, which therapist are we going to send him to um, or the two of them to who's going to help. Um, domestic abuse... Um, occurs within a, a larger sociological reality, and that intervention needs to be appreciated and understood um, in a much broader sense. So intervention could mean literally, you know, a clinical intervention of a therapist getting involved, but intervention can also mean that a rabbi has gotten involved, or there are family members that are involved, or that there's community messages and community support for um, appropriate, um, respectful relationship behavior and um, not supportive of domestic abuse behaviors. So I, I just want us to appreciate intervention in the broadest sense of the word when we speak about this. So this question just came in. Is, an, is narcissism domestic abuse or terrorism when he treats her like garbage? Well, I mean, I assume that the questioner means narcissism in the clinical sense of somebody who's being diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, I would assume. Right. But okay. I can tell you as a clinician that there are people who have narcissistic personality disorder that will not necessarily do these behaviors. Um, and then there are people who absolutely don't have the diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder who, who do do these behaviors. So I think it's a mistake or, or just simply maybe a lack of um, complete understanding. You know, so if narcissism is meant sort of colloquially, to just mean sort of a selfish or a self-centered person, then obviously we can call, you know, it would be easy to say that anybody that behaves this way and treats somebody this way is a selfish or self-centered person. But if we mean it in the clinical sense, I think it's important to understand that this phenomenon of domestic abuse, of situational couple violence, as well as intimate partner terrorism, is not specific to any one diagnosis in any way, shape, or form. Okay, so if you look in the, in the ICD, which is the medical, the physician's um, diagnostic manual, if you look in the DSM, which is the psychiatric diagnostic manual, you're not going to find diagnoses of a specific disorder that accounts for domestic abuse behaviors, intimate partner terrorism. You can have a person, um, we, we could sit here and we can talk about some of the potential um, personality issues that a person may have, 
but it's a mistake to simply think that if a person does have narcissistic personality, then they're, they're, um, they're perpetrating these behaviors or that any, everybody who perpetrates these behaviors has narcissistic personality disorder. So I'm not sure if that fully answered the question. Tell me if it did. Um, it answered it to me, but I didn't ask the question. Yeah, okay. Okay. Uh, so again, sometimes when we're looking at a situation as a bystander and there's abuse coming from both ends, how can we, you know, how can we differentiate who and what and how or what to do in that situation? Right. Again, it sounds again, you know, like I'm saying with all of these scenarios, a closer, um, proper evaluation or look is always warranted to be able to give a more definitive, you know, um, understanding. But but just from from the description of it, it sounds like it's more likely a description of a dynamic of situational couple violence. And situational couple violence, if you have a couple, you know, you can have, I've, I've met couples like this where there's um, ongoing situational couple violence, and yet at the end of the day, there's a strong attachment or commitment to the coupleship, to the marriage. Um, there can even be, as, as strange or as sick as it may sound, there can even fundamentally be underneath it um, strong feelings of affection and care for each other. And there could be all sorts of variables from a clinical perspective as to why this couple behaves so inappropriately or dysfunctionally with each other where you know, it gets to situations where they trigger and become reactive to each other and, and then there's violent behavior. But the bottom line is that you can have a couple with situational couple violence that could be very appropriate and amenable for a couple's intervention for a couple's counseling, um, or you may have other situations where um, some individual therapy needs to take place first um, or, or concurrently at the same time. And again, in order to really know, that couple would really need to you know, be seen face-to-face with a competent professional to determine that. But just theoretically speaking, if the scenario is describing situational couple violence, if there's a commitment, if there's an interest in the relationship to, to, to better themselves, to, to better their marriage, then potentially good, appropriate couples counseling could be an appropriate intervention. So uh, another question that came in. Some people don't want to go to professionals. They want to only work with a RUV. As a professional who's seen people who started off working with a RUV and these deep, complex issues, is, that, is it possible to work through even situational uh, violence uh, with the with the rev or unprofessional or quasi well look it's it's my it's my perspective that the 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 typical term shalom bias or shalom bias issues that uh, people typically use or abanim will typically use um, is is not talking about situations that warrant clinical intervention um, and there are situations where couples can benefit greatly from going to the Rav, who they trust, who they turn to, who they rely on. Um, and the Rav has wisdom and Seichel uh, and, and and Torah knowledge to be able to guide them. And um, I have no doubt that many, many Rabbanim today and, and, and for years have helped countless couples just directly through rabbinical counseling. But when we're talking about situations where um, there's, there's a degree of clinical relevance you know, there's, there's, there's a serious aspect of dysfunction, um, either in the relationship and or within the individuals themselves, then any competent rub, any wise 
grounded Rav would be the first probably to say that, you know, you guys need to see a professional. I don't think, I, I don't know Rabbanim that would um, meet somebody who's describing a heart problem and think that they would want to, you know, make an appointment by me tomorrow. Don't go to the cardiologist and see me. I don't know any Rav that would do that. I don't know any Rav that would do it any differently with this. That's me into doing sexual things I'm not comfortable with. And when I don't, he gets mad at me or guilt trips me, so sometimes I do. He consistently disregards my wants and calls me spoiled and stubborn. He doesn't see the problem at all with his behavior, but, it makes, but this makes me depressed. Isn't this abuse? Yeah, so again, I, I think that we could do this with many of the uh, types or the categories of abuse. There's no question that this is abusive behavior, and there's no question that it's inappropriate, and there's no question that it's harmful. Uh, she's becoming depressed. She's deeply distressed by it. But if we're talking about, you know, are we talking about a situation of intimate partner terrorism, then we may or we may not be. And there's a good chance, um, I would say a, a better chance than none, just statistically speaking, that we're not talking about intimate partner terrorism. We're talking about serious dysfunction. We're talking about somebody who's definitely going to need some serious education and appreciation about um, healthy sexual relationship between couples and, um, and understanding um, his wife and how to engage with her, how to seduce her, so to speak, in a, in a, in a way that um, is... Um, is reaffirming to her for herself personally and for the relationship. Um, and so obviously intervention would be appropriate over here. But just from the scenario itself, it, it would be tempting to, to listen to a situation where somebody is sort of blatantly doing something that we would call abusive behavior and just simplify it by saying, okay, so he's an abuser and there's nothing more that could be done. But um, that's not necessarily the case. And there could be, I don't want to go into speculation about this because um, a little information could be a dangerous thing. But as a clinician, I can clinically speculate to a whole number of potential understandings of what might be going on for the guy and what kind of interventions might be helpful if they were being seen, if they were gotten, you know, if they, if they, if they were in the right hands and they were seeking help and interested in help, whether it's the, the intervention would be the two of them together or, and or just him alone. Again, it would depend on many variables. There would be no one you know, cover, you know, universal applied um, um, right. intervention. Okay. It would really depend on the actual couple, on the individual. Another question. What about the children? In a situation of situational abuse or dysfunction and there's a decision to stay in the marriage, what, happen, what do the children observe and what's the best way to protect the children? Right. Well, I mean, so... The, 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 any any um, exposure to violence, it doesn't matter from a child's perspective um, what what category of, of dysfunction or problem you know their parents' um, relationship is. You know, being exposed to violence in any way, shape, or form is deeply traumatic and um, problematic for a child. Um, in fact, there are laws. I'm not an attorney, and I'm not going to get into specifics. It would be out of my purview. But our law is protecting the safety of children and holding adults, parents accountable, um, and even in some states holding um, a victim accountable to maintaining their responsibility for the safety of a child because we understand that there is a concept of secondary exposure. And even if a child is not being directly physically um, harmed um, but witnessing abusive behavior, whether it's physical or it's um, any other form of abusive behavior, is harmful for a child. So um, children, unfortunately, are always uh, the victims, so to speak, 
in their exposure to any sort of abusive um, uh, pattern in a relationship. And hopefully, the fact that children exist can be appealed to um, to the parents, to their love and their concern and their care for the children in their seeking um, appropriate help and appropriate intervention. Um, unless there's well, more specific follow questions. follow up to that question. Mm-hmm. If someone doesn't consider the, uh, the children, is, is there help for that person? If somebody, what, who someone is the somebody? Is, I guess what they're saying is if the abuser, or maybe they're both dysfunctional or whatever, and one of them is, or one or both is not, doesn't consider the children, is there help for this, fam- help for this family? Meaning, I guess, that if, you know, if it's not enough of a push to, to want to make change, if the children are not enough of a push to make change, then what might be, or is there any chance that there's something that's going to be even bigger a push for them to make some change? Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, I, I mean, the, the, the question is sort of implying the, the notion that, um, that the way to get this person or couple to get change, to get, to get help, is through leverage, and that, you know, the fact that their children are involved um, would hypothetically be sufficient leverage, and here the situation is so extreme that that's not even sufficient leverage. But I would really urge us to try to stay away from that type of thinking. That type of thinking really does reflect the fixer-helper-rescuer mentality as opposed to the server mentality. And um, I'm hard-pressed to believe that most people on this planet that have children, um, as dysfunctional as a situation may be, don't love and, and want what's best for their children. And so... Um, it's very easy for us to make snap judgments from, from an outside perspective and say this person is or isn't this or is or isn't willing to do that. But reality is, is thankfully usually more complex than that. Um, it's going to be difficult for us to dispense some sort of magical advice to somebody who's on the outside that if you just say this or you go from that angle, then that will be the right thing to do or to say to, to get the right response you know, that you're looking for, which is obviously that the couple or the individual would, would be um, open to going for help. Um, so obviously we can't give some sort of magical formula, but I would just caution us not to see it in, in this way of um, you know, the children are the leverage, but if the children are not the leverage, then what's going to work? Because we're thinking from the place of we're going to make this happen, but we're, we're not going to make anything happen. If these are people that we are... Um, connected to sufficiently, that there's a real connection and there's a relationship, then like I highlighted by f- before, the characteristics of, of being present for the couple or for the, um, for the wife, wh- whoever's involved, whoever it's relevant for, from the position of server is really how we need to be tuned into this, really what's, what, what, what would ultimately be most effective and most helpful. Are, are there statistics of how many cases in the firm world are of the terrorism versus dysfunction? Um, I doubt it. Um, statistics in the firm world in general are hard to come by. Um, so, and, and if they do exist, I don't know of them. But I, I'm doubtful that we have real numbers to, to answer that question. So I guess in, in just anecdotally, are most of the cases that the lay person might call abusive, are they really domestic abuse or are they dysfunction? We know that, um, it's in generally speaking, in the population, I have no reason to believe that in the firm world it would be any different, um, that generally speaking, when we take any kind of situation, whether we, you know, we go by the police records, the statistics that the, the law has, or, or clinicians, you know, the, the, the clinical research that's done, 
we know that most uh, dynamics that involve um, uh, uh, some form of abuse behavior or violence um, goes more under, it's more frequently situational couple violence than the intimate partner terrorism, which thankfully is the case because then we're talking about more um, uh, abusive behaviors in the context of dysfunction. And I don't in any way mean to um, minimize both the concerns about that or the suffering or the pain that people may be in in that. I, I want to be really clear about that. But the ramifications for a relationship that has dysfunction um, for individuals or for even for the coupleship in terms of situational couple violence is a different kind of situation, you know, um, with different ramifications than intimate partner terrorism. So um, I wish I could say offhand what those numbers would be. Um, I don't know, you know, in terms of, you know, proportionally what is the, 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 the numbers of, of situational couple violence versus um, intimate partner terrorism. I could tell you, though, that it's significantly more frequently um, situational couple violence in some way. So I guess in a simpler statement, what I can say, the implication of what I'm trying to say in a, in a simple way is that there are many situations that would seem to us to be, you know, sort of blatantly clear, not help, not helpable, where that's not factually so. Okay, that's a very important point, especially for yeah. those bystanders. That correct. We don't know enough. As we don't know enough of, of the story, and we also don't know enough to be a di uh, di to diagnose what the situation is. So again, as a, be a server, and definitely don't say you're in an abusive relationship. You got to get out. Right. I mean, abusive relationship is this catch-all kind of a phrase, but really, you know, I'm hoping that I'm impressing this evening some, some distinctions that we can appreciate. It isn't quite, you know, just black and white. There's abusive behavior, so there's this um, umbrella kind of term and, and category to put the person in. It's thankfully much more complex and nuanced than that, and that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It means that most of the time, um, if and when people are, are safe and ready and, and get to the right people, um, help can be available for many situations and improvement can, you know, progress can happen. So I guess in, in, in summary, it's don't tell someone to leave their marriage. You don't know, you never tell someone to leave their marriage. Right. Is that right? Yeah. And especially because you don't know what you, you pro possibly, probably don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, in, in the simplest way, I mean, just even strategically speaking, even if we're talking, even if we absolutely believe that it is the right thing to say or the right thing for this person to do, human nature is such that if I tell a person that's in that situation, leave your marriage, the, the first thing they do psychologically and emotionally is dig in their heels and give me reasons why I shouldn't and why he's such a wonderful guy or what I have to lose. It's, it's absolutely poor poor, poor understanding of human psychology at the, at the most simplest of levels. That's not the way we, we engage someone in the process of change. It's, 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 um, it's literally like being a bull in a china shop, that kind of approach. So even if we're absolutely certain that, you know, this is what's best and what's right, number one, it's not our right, as, as you just said. You know, uh, adults have to determine their own way. But, but even... <laughs> Even if we care so deeply for this person and have such clarity, it's just simply not a skillful way of engaging someone in the process of change. And for most people, difficult change, you know, whether it's an addictive habit or a, or a difficult ingrained habit or a relationship, which is a very significant part of someone's life, change doesn't happen overnight. It happens in a process gradually over a long period of time. And um, nobody's changing because someone said change. And also on the flip of it, I've, what I'm encountering now is that people are 
telling others, you don't realize you're in an abusive relationship. You have to get out. Or you're, or just people saying that rather, rather than telling people this might be dysfunctional, mm-hmm. someone has to learn some new skills, people are saying you're in an, uh, helping, them, helping them realize, and I'm saying that in quotes, helping them realize that they're in an abusive relationship. Yeah, I have no doubt that, you know, people that are doing that have the best of intentions and um, whether they're coming from their own personal experiences and background or, you know, just care and they really feel like this is most helpful. But it's important, like, uh, you know, the, the phrase a bull in a china shop, it's, it's important to really be, be appreciative of the fact that um, we're unintentionally robbing people of their own intelligence and their own sense of agency when we tell them what they're, what they're going through and we tell them what they need to do about it. What we can do is um, give information. What we can do is educate. What we can do is listen. What we can do is offer resources. What we can do is give assistance or help when it's asked for, when it's seeked out. And that's just fundamentally good human behavior in any situation, including this. So uh, some, on those same lines, people say, but she's in denial, so I have to help her see that. I'm sorry? She's in denial. She, uh, mm-hmm. She's in denial that she's being abused, and which sometimes does happen, mm-hmm. is that you know, she doesn't recognize what's happening or she's just, you know, denial sometimes is an easy uh, mechanism to just not mm-hmm. deal with something. So mm-hmm. she feels that she has to help her realize what's going on. Right, but again, denial, you know, is one of those words that um, has a clinical implication, or we could just use it sort of colloquially. But d- denial, as it, as it, as from a psychological perspe- perspective, is a defense mechanism. So it's human nature to deny a reality when they are simply not yet ready to deal with the truth of that reality. So by us thinking that we're now going to spell it out and it's all going to become crystal clear to the person is completely not appreciating what a defense mechanism does and, and what it's serving for the person. So at, at best, it's not going to be effective. At worst, it could create a lot more damage and harm than benefit and good. So if, if there's truly denial happening, the, the meaning that a person is, is denying as a result of their own defense, um, their own psychological and emotional defense, they're denying a reality that is truly happening, then what they need from people that are there to help them is a lot of safety and a lot of care and a lot of supportiveness and a lot of space to be able to, over time, own and acknowledge the truth for themselves. Mm-hmm. So, and in, in no circumstances is it, is it worthwhile or advised or even acceptable to be telling someone what's going on for them and to tell them what to do. I think it's very, very dangerous when we um, inadvertently start playing God for other people's lives. Let me just check out the last few questions that came in. I'm trying to clarify his opinion on intervention. In the beginning, he mentioned that a family member should be a server, but he mentioned at another point that there should be intervention, which, I understand, which my understanding is the opposite of a server. Well, um, I, I don't remember exactly what I said about that, but in the context of the idea of a server, it's, I wasn't trying to say that intervention um, can't be offered or, or, or mentioned or educated about, but, but, the, but, the, but the attitude of being a server means that I am primarily listening. And if I'm listening, then I'm really hearing if this person is seeking the information, if this person is ready for an offer for help, what type of assistance or help this person is looking for or ready for or interested in, so that if there's an intervention, quote-unquote, that's being um, now uh, spoken about or engaged, it's actually matching the reality of, of, of what the victim 
is, is wanting and is ready for and is needing. It's not matching my own wants, my own agenda, my own ideas. That, that was what I was trying to convey. Okay, here's another question. Why is it worth the time examining if it's abuse or dysfunction if she doesn't want to change and won't change and there's harm being done, shouldn't she just leave anyway? Well, that's a dilemma for the person who's in, that's exactly the dilemma for a person who's in that reality to have to sort through. But it's their dilemma to sort through. It isn't anyone else's. Mm-hmm. Um, so so nobody's denying the truth of that, you know, the idea of that. If, if somebody's in a relationship and, you know, inappropriate or unacceptable behavior is taking place and the person who's doing it doesn't seem to be interested in making change, um, then it's true. No, no, you know, th- nobody has to sit there and analyze, is it this category or that category? And, and they get to sit and determine what the ramifications are for them and what they want to do for themselves. But the primary point I'm trying to drive home is that, what that person in that situation needs from people around them is um, a supportiveness and a respectfulness for them to be able to go through that process, which may take a short amount of time, and it may take years. And the result of that, whenever it is, may not be the result that we think should happen or that we would want should happen. And are we prepared for that? Are we prepared to just simply be supportive to this person as they navigate their own life, or do we think we know better for someone else? That, that's what I'm trying to sensitize us to. And this last question that came in, a neighbor is abusing his wife and children and home. Do I have a duty to call ACS? Um, How does it work? Okay, so that's um, the first thing I'll say is that's a legal question. It's not a clinical question. So I will say what I believe is the answer, but I want to make it clear I'm not an attorney, and this is is a legal question. But I believe that um, the idea of having a – Obligation to report is what we call, at least in New York, certainly a mandated reporter. There may be other states may have a different term for that. And um, typically people that are just neighbors, what have you, are not mandated reporters. They're not legally obligated. There are people that are in specific positions, for example, mental health professionals in the context of working professionally with a person that are what are called mandated reporters. And there are other people that go into that category as well. Um, So that's as far as I can go in answering that um, you know, if there's more nuances or, or whatever, it's, it's, we're getting into legalities. But on that same note, it might be worthwhile to bring it to the attention of someone in the community who can possibly do something, whether it's a person's rub or this is all a separate conversation. I, I don't know. My first inclination would be that if I, if I see a parent that's um, mistreating their child, my first inclination would be why wouldn't I approach the parent in a respectful, non-threatening um, manner to convey my concern and to offer support or, or to inquire about how I could be of help or, or what might be helpful. Um, I, I don't see why I would immediately... Um, go any other way. I mean, obviously, each situation is, is specific, and, and there may be reasons why in one situation a person can't do that or, or knows that's not the way to go. So obviously, every situation has to be treated specifically and uniquely for its own reality. But just the mentality of it, generally speaking, you know, we, the, the first assumption should be let's just approach the person directly, um, it, but in a caring, respectful, appropriate kind of a way. In other words, if, if I see somebody perpetrate it's absolutely not a justification for me to become a perpetrator on the perpetrator. Intolerance doesn't justify someone else, you know, my intolerance. Sure. 
Wow. Okay. So thank you. We gave a lot of a lot to think about for those who are dealing with this or have neighbors, families uh, dealing with this. I think it clarifies several issues that were coming up. I think this is a good way for us to kind of sum up the domestic abuse that we uh, awareness and education that we started for the spring. We're off for the summer, and if anyone has any questions over the summer, please do email us and we'll try to get you the answers. If you send them to us anonymously, obviously we can't help you. Um, we might be able to include it in a future article, but it's easier if we have your uh, contact information, if it's something that you really want us to possibly help you with. If it's just an idea for future calls, then that's great anonymous work. So thank you, thank you, thank you, David, for talking to us and providing us a lot of insights. And thank you You're all for welcome. joining us tonight. It's been my pleasure and honor.